Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I hope you are having a spectacular week. My guest today is Ellen Paulson. She is back for the fourth time. Ellen is a lifelong 1930s gangland crime chronicler, researcher, and writer. On her past visits, she talked about her book Chasing Dillinger, Police Captain Matt Leach, J. Edgar Hoover, and the rivalry to capture public enemy number one. Don't Call Us Malls, Women of the John Dillinger Gang, and The Case Against Lucky Luciano, New York's Most Sensational Vice Trial. And she returns to talk about a really interesting chapter in John Dillinger's criminal career, his capture in Tucson, Arizona. Thank you for coming on today. So great to have you back, as always. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, Looking forward to talking about one of my favorite subjects, and certainly yours, uh, John Dillinger. So would you mind setting the scene for us? Who was traveling with Dillinger in the days before they arrived in Tucson, Arizona, on January 21st, 1934? And what had they been up to? Eric, you got your date right. January 21st was the arrival. And they all filtered in in different manners. There were three cars involved altogether. Um, Evelyn Freshette, of course, Dillinger's beloved Billy, was traveling with him in a Hudson sedan It looks as though they actually came from Wisconsin. The car had Wisconsin license plates, and they had taken a convoluted route from Florida, which had been their location during Christmas and some say New Year's Eve, some say not. On January 15th, Dillinger was allegedly involved in a fatal bank robbery, And he was on the lam from that. He was hot, 
hot like an iron, extremely hot. So it stands to reason that he went up and holed up in Wisconsin with his girlfriend because they were able to hide on the reservation very easily. Everybody up there in the Menominee tribe knew Dillinger and Evelyn, and they, the close friends would host them and alternately hide them. So Dillinger filtered in with Evelyn. And at the same time, those other lovebirds, Harry Pierpont and Mary Kinder, were traveling in in a Buick sedan that had Florida license plates. So it's possible that they had come directly from Florida. They may have taken a detour in Nashville, which was another one of their spots for the gang. And um, they checked in to a, a series of, there were tourist courts and there was motels. So everybody kind of associates the Dillinger gang with two places, you know, the Congress Hotel and or the location on North 2nd where several of the arrests took place. Well, they weren't exactly just there. And so Dillinger Files will think of the Congress Hotel, but they actually had rooms in two places. One was called the Close In Motel. Another was called the Arizona Tourist Court. Now, these were very plain. I don't want to say, you know, one night stand type hotels, but they were pretty much drive in kind of state of the art for the 1930s, what they used to call tourist camps or tourist courts. So they had those reservations there. Now, there was another car, more lovebirds. This was a real, uh, they were the sweetheart brigade, you know, Russell Clark <laughs> and Opal Long, who was traveling as Bernie's Clark. Opal may or may not have been married to Russell Clark. Again, you know, it, the Dillinger thing is really great because you know, 50% of the people will say that she was married to Clark and 50% will say she was not married to Clark. She just said she was. So they were traveling with their third wheel, who was Charlie Makeley. And um, Makeley always seemed to kind of be by himself. He was a loner, you know. And um, anything that they rented, they rented alongside Charlie Magley, of course, in another room or in an adjoining room. But um, Magley soon found a female companion whose name was not, but <laughs> probably not May Miller or Marge Miller. She was uh, a local girl and claimed to be a torch singer. A torch singer in those days was kind of a word for a nightclub act, you know, uh, the female version of a crooner. So they all filtered in separately, and um, by January 23rd, three of them were staying at the Congress. Now, the three who were at the Congress was Opal Long, Russell Clark, and Charlie Makeley. They were in two rooms, 329 and 330. Now, for, the, for those who have not yet become Dillinger addicts, and who probably <laughs> will be addicts by the time you and I are done, Eric. The Congress is that kind of legendary landmark of Tucson where um, they, to this day, host reenactments every year in January. And um, it's very much preserved in the manner 
of which it stood in the 1930s. Rooms did not have television sets when I was there in the early 2000s. You 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 were in Tucson, right, Eric? So you uh, had occasion to go by the Congress? Yes, I have been to Tucson. I have driven past it, but unfortunately didn't get a chance to go in. And it's pretty much the same. It looks the only difference. Now, Clark, Opalong, and Makeley stayed in rooms 329 and 330. I believe that's gone. I believe after the fire, which took place on the third floor, they never renovated it. I think I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm so sorry. There was a fire, an early morning fire on January 3rd, which um, resulted in Clark and his lady friend and Charlie Makeley being helped out by firefighters. And uh, that's a very loaded statement because... you know, that led to a lot of problems for them. But uh, so that's where they were. I mean, you asked me where where was everybody? They were at the Congress. The house was rented on North 2nd, which is where they were later. Several of them were arrested. It was rented. There was also a rental at the Arizona Tourist Court where Dillinger, his girlfriend, Billy, and Harry Pierpont, and his girlfriend, Mary, were staying for a very short time. So uh, that's where everybody was. I mean, everybody was pretty scattered when they first arrived, which probably made sense to them because traveling as a gang <laughs> wasn't a great idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think they thought they had a lot of cover being split up like that. So, Yeah. The fire started on January 23rd. Do you know how it began and how Makeley and company managed to escape? I can't tell you how the fire started. I guess what would have been fire marshals at that time, if there were reports filed, I've never come across anything. Mysterious, isn't it, in its timing, though? Yeah, right? true. I mean, that yeah, right. You know, oh, the Dillinger's gang is here and a fire starts, chicken or the egg, you know. But um, they they had their luggage and their luggage contained quite an arsenal. And you can kill me in a fire, but don't take my guns. <laughs> so <laughs> they allegedly gave a uh, two firefighters money which I don't think they would have required. Maybe that's a myth that they gave the firefighters money. I mean, you know, you're in a fire. You just want to get out, right? But these two firefighters took their suitcases down the ladder and uh, they noticed that they were very heavy because, yeah, I guess there there were Thompson submachine guns, bulletproof vests. There were some pistols and revolvers. So, you know, it was all it was all um pretty heavy. And the firefighters' names, here I have it, were um William Benedict and Kenneth Pender, you know, to give the salt of the earth here their due. And um later in the station house, to get to the uh cause of, of all the trouble that this fire started for Opal and Russell Clark. They recognized Russell Clark in a magazine called True Detective 
that was lying around the firehouse. Now, you know, I guess you have to kind of put yourself back in time. You know, we're an internet nation here. Does anybody even read anything in print? I do, but I'm a dinosaur. I guess it's the kind of the uh, modern day equivalent of scrolling through one's phone while they're digesting their lunch or whatever. They they picked up a magazine called True Detective, and those uh, were very, very popular magazines at the time. They were kind of a uh, pulp for uh, for husbands and fathers. They, they could be uh, allowed into the house. But, you know, they were kind of uh, slimy in, in their way. They had some semi-nude advertisements and things, titillation, you know, in an era of great censorship. So uh, here they were perusing this magazine and they see Russell Clark's mugshot and wanted. They were fugitives from justice. Again, for those uninitiated, the... Uh, Dylan Chang were on the lam from a, a daring prison escape from an Indiana state prison. Uh, Dillinger was the one exception. He was the parolee, but he was also wanted for an escape from a county jail in Ohio, which resulted in the death of, of Sheriff Sauber. So they, they were, they were wanted. They were hot on the skillet and, uh, they were recognized, okay? So at the time that they were recognized, they were no longer living in the Congress because they had gone over to a house on 927 North 2nd. I'm sorry, my notes don't say street or avenue. And the house is still there, Oh, not to make trouble for the current occupants, but it's quite a tourist attraction. I mean, all the diligent people walk past that house. <laughs> So Clark and Opalong were kind of holed up in there, right? Makely, with his girlfriend, May Miller, his newly minted girlfriend, were uh, strolling around downtown, and Makely was picked up by police um, in front of a radio shop that is no longer there. It's a shame because it was still there just 10 years ago, but uh, he was picked up first, and and now this woman who had absolutely nothing to do with anything, I'm sure she didn't even know who he was, she was booked on uh, possession of a machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably the first time she ever heard of a machine gun. <laughs> but uh, he was the first one who was arrested, and his Studebaker sedan, also with Florida license plates, was immediately impounded. So Makley was the first person to be arrested. Now, there's there was other intelligence that came from two salesmen, all right, which which allegedly alerted the police. The this is what happened. There were two salesmen. One was from New York, uh, upstate New York. You know, I'm. I'm a, I'm in the uh, five boroughs, so we always say upstate. <laughs> if, it didn't happen, if, if you're not from the five boroughs, you're upstate. So, uh, and the other salesman was from New Orleans. I'm assuming that they were, uh, I guess, you know, friends from a convention or whatever, which is usually happens when salespeople make friends out of town, you know. And they were out drinking in a place called Charlie Chase's nightclub. 
And uh, Charlie Chase's nightclub is no longer there, but that was located very close to the, to the action. It was close to the courthouse, close to the jail. Everything took place within a very short proximity. And um, they were bragging, you know, it was the liquor speaking, and they were bragging about being tough guys. And, and here's Russell Clark now. He's out drinking and he violated a very, very important canon of the Dillinger gang, which is that you don't drink because if you drink, you're going to talk. And I don't know why there wasn't anybody there to silence him, but he he got into it with them. And he said, well, you know, I'm going to show you my bulletproof vest, tough guy. You want to see my machine gun or you want to see my tops or my whatever, gat? <laughs> what did they call them, gat? I don't know what he said. <laughs> but he he said enough, apparently. And I guess anybody who's had two or three sheets and who's opened up their big fat mouth can relate to, to that uh, problem and how he must have regretted that for the rest of his life. But the uh, the salesman's names were Jacob Rosen and Irving Russell saw, and they found a traffic cop and they spoke to the traffic cop and they said, you know, I think you ought to know that there's some pretty uh, shady people in town. So that was the second tip off. You know, there are people who say it was the fireman, it wasn't the salesman. And then it was people who said it was the salesman and not the fireman. To bring myself into it for a second, I was fortunate enough to be able to speak to Stan Benjamin. I don't know. Have you heard of Stan, Eric? I haven't, no. He was, I, he's, he was a retired Tucson cop who was fortunate enough to be able to interview several of the arresting officers in the 1970s. So, you know, he didn't have a whole lot of firsthand information. He said to me, you know, you have to understand something. I'm interviewing guys in the 70s, the 70s who are trying to remember what happened in the 30s. <laughs> <laughs> but he felt that the salesman's story was uh, could stand side by side with the fireman's story, that both were valid. It wasn't um, an issue of one one canceled out the other, you know. So we had this other source of information that came in from the firefighters and from the salesmen. And I believe that the information that the salesman gave the traffic cop was phoned in on some sort of a corner uh, telephone or something. So now... Uh, that signaled, I guess, the the order to go out and start catching these people. So Makeley was the first one to be pulled in. Now, uh, it's interestingly enough, the Tucson story revolves less around what the Dillinger gang was doing and more around how they were arrested. It's not often that you get to capture John Dillinger, right? <laughs> it, it, it was a sensational story. Yes, the Dillinger gang was a really big deal. And um, that was partly the result of publicity that was generated by Captain Matt Leach of the Indiana State Police. But um, 
there were other police officers who did not believe in in generating publicity, and they worked behind the scenes. Now, newspapers loved sensation, and there were quite a lot of sensational goings on, as you know, as a researcher yourself. In 1933, I mean, you could take your pick. You had you had the Urschel kidnapping, which was a kidnapping of a wealthy businessman that was generated by the gang that was known basically as Machine Gun Kelly's gang. You know, there was the infamous Union Station massacre that was perpetuated by uh, Pretty Boy Floyd, allegedly. And uh, that was June of 1933 that brought the FBI into the whole fight against crime. So, you know, in in the United States, you know, we've had our wars uh, against crime. We had Nixon's war on drugs. We had Reagan's war on drugs and Clinton's war on drugs, you know, but to go way back, we had Hoover's war on crime. And um, it was all part of a big circus at that point. I mean, not to say, not to in any way take away from the horrific deaths of the lawmen involved, then the FBI agents who were killed, and and then there was the Bonnie and Clyde series of cop killings. So there was there was a serious threat to the safety of police officers. And I think part of the whole miracle of Tucson was that they were arrested one by one or two by two for the ones that were paired off with their ladies by uh, men on the street cops, you know, they were picked up by traffic cops, motorcycle cops, cops on foot. Um, very interestingly, that while FBI agents and state policemen were being killed quite literally left and right by the public enemies, not just the Dillinger gang, but as I said, I mentioned all these others, Babyface Nelson and all, these public enemies were arrested peacefully by uh, peace officers uh, in their daily rounds. And I think that that was essentially the miracle of Tucson and what made Tucson so exceptional in the scope of the whole Dillinger story. We will be back after a brief break. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. 
We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. Uh, I want to put it in order so that it doesn't seem like I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I believe that the, the first, and also for the sake of history, um, <laughs> the first arrest after Makeley was uh, Clark, the Russell Clark and Opalum. And... Uh, that was a pretty wild arrest. <laughs> that wasn't um, that wasn't exactly a peaceful scenario there. They were Dallas Ford, Frank Iman. They knocked on the door, right, of this lovely little southwestern style house, and the first blooper was, uh, "Is Mister Clark there?" <laughs> uh, very you polite. Know, it's like. <laughs> Knocking on the door and hello is Osama bin Laden happened to be there. No, you know he was um, <laughs> he was masquerading as Art Long, and that was a uh, alias that he had been using even back in Chicago shortly after his his prison break from you know Michigan City. And uh, so rather than is is Mister Long there? We have your shirts, you know. We have your laundry. We have your groceries. Is Mr. Clark there? You know, Mr. Clark, the fugitive from justice. <laughs> <laughs> Does he happen to be here? So um, that was the first blooper, and uh, there were quite a few. Russell Clark's thirty-eight was under his pillow. Now, not a good idea when the police are at the door. And I, I don't know, it, there's a little confusion. I know the author, John Tolan, wrote that Opalong, Mrs. Bernice Clark, had moved the gun. And when he reached under the pillow, it wasn't there. Now, I, I don't know if that's substantiated. I guess Clark wasn't going to give away any information once he was under arrest. He was pretty tight-lipped about the whole thing. But uh, it, there was a big scuffle because the police pushed their way in. They pushed their way in, and his first instinct was to grab the gun, right? So now they're wrestling around. Opa Long, whose nickname was Mack Truck, which that's terrible. What a thing to call a woman. Her nickname was Mack Truck, and she slammed the door, and she broke Dallas Ford's finger. So she was um, beaten up quite a bit. Her mugshot shows her all black and blue eye, black eyes. So now you've got this, you know, gun mall named Mack Truck who's wrestling with a six foot five inch gangster, you know, a police officer who's desperately holding on to his gun. And I'm sure if, you know, saying the Catholic equivalent of the act of contrition, probably thinking any minute's going to be his last. And, uh, 
that's it. I mean, they got him. They wrestled them down. And by slamming, slamming Russell Clark in the head with a pistol, with a service revolver, and, and they brought him down. Now, somehow in, in the fray, they were able to cuff them and arrest them and get these two people into police car. And they grabbed a lot of uh, weaponry, the weaponry that was um, rescued from the Congress Hotel. So now here we have another big mistake. They left the blood on the steps, Clark's blood, because he was pretty batted. And pictures of uh, Clark after the arrest show him heavily bandaged and uh, holding his head. So there's blood on the steps now, right? And there's the guns are in the police station lying open in the suitcase, which would... Both of these things would tip off the other members of the gang. The next people, I, Pierpont was arrested at about four o'clock that afternoon. So he was next, okay? He was stopped right near these auto courts and all the wide avenues of Tucson. You know, as a New Yorker, when I went to Tucson, where's all the cars? <laughs> These wide avenues, you know, and uh, he was stopped very close to where they had booked uh, hotels, the Close Inn and this Arizona tourist court. What he did was really dumb for Harry Pierpont, the trigger man. He was the true tough guy of the Dillinger gang. Okay, this is what the arresting officers said later on. He pulled a cop over prior to this to introduce himself and say that he was a uh, nervous tourist. And uh, he had heard that there were gangsters in town. And would the cops make sure he was safe? Now, what were we thinking? (laughs) But, you know, he made himself very conspicuous with his little mall. Mary Kinder was a tiny lady, like five foot one. And you know, Pierpont was very tall. So, you know, they had this kind of like uh, Laurel and Hardy appearance. And uh, very shortly after that, driving the same car now, his Buick with the Florida license plates, he uh, was uh, pulled over by, by three traffic cops. And he was pulled over by Jay Smith, Milo Swedewalker, was also there when they arrested Pierpont. Um, he was traveling as J.C. Evans, okay? That was his alias. Now, they pulled him over at a traffic stop, and they said, you know, there's there's some dangerous people in town, and we want to do a check on out-of-towners because there are bad people in town, you know, and we just want to check your papers. So they actually... One of these officers got into the police car with Pierpont and Mary in the back seat. Unbeknownst to him, Pierpont was clutching his handgun. Pierpont was armed. He had about three handguns on him, including the gun that they stole from Sheriff Saba, whom they murdered, were later convicted of murdering back in Ohio. So he directed him to the police station. Now, I mean, this is just amazing, you know, that he walked into the police station peacefully with Mary, still probably thinking that he was going to pass himself off as J.C. Evans. And what happened was 
he sees the guns. He sees the guns that were confiscated from Opal Long and um, Russell Clark by the by the front desk, and immediately goes, you know, to sound. I'm a, you know, I'm a writer. I'm not supposed to use cliches, but he went ballistic, and uh, started to fight. And they pulled out something that they the cops always call an iron claw. It was kind of a te- it was something that was used by police in those days to subdue prisoners. And they tightened it. It looked a little bit like, uh, I don't know how to describe it, like, I guess a vise. You know, it looked like a vise with very long clamps. And it uh, was tightened. Ouch. (laughs) And uh, they tightened it on him. And he tried to stuff a piece of paper into his mouth, which was uh, the address, that Second Street address which they already knew about that place. <laughs> they had been there, done that. And uh, they they were able to get that out of his mouth with the, with this clamp, with this iron claw. They pulled uh, a shoulder holster off him. They had, he had a gun in his, uh, in his, uh, around his ankle. So they were able to pull a couple of guns off him. And, you know, pictures of t- uh, Pierpont that were taken at that point show him very black and blue, you know, very swollen, I mean, they uh, beat the you-know-what out of them, you know? And uh, meanwhile, they're quietly ushering the the women, you know, into jail cells while all this is taking place. So by 4 o'clock, 4.30, they had Pierpont. So, you know, that left Dillinger. He was the last one. And they went to this address, back to the ranch there, back to that nice little house at 927 North 2nd. And Dillinger was pulling up in his Hudson sedan with the Wisconsin license plates. And his lady friend, Evelyn, whose habit was to stay in the car. I mean, she learned the hard way through a couple of shootouts that she was uh, the passenger. She was occupying the passenger seat through. By the time the whole thing was over, I don't know, three or four shootouts, this lady she uh, she stayed in the passenger seat and he got out and uh, they went up to him and uh, Dillinger identified himself by his own alias, which I don't know, he used so many. Um, Frank Kirkman was one that he was using when he had just recently been in Florida. Frank Sullivan, I'm sorry. He liked Frank, huh? He was Frank Kirkland. Now he's Frank Sullivan. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Frankie. (laughs) Frank Sinatra. No, that was a little before Sinatra's time. But uh, I'm Frank Sullivan. And they they brought him in. They arrested him peacefully. Gillinger put up his hands, all right? And, you know, this was an MO. You know, we'll use true crime lingo here. (laughs) His modus operandi was always to raise his hands when he was under arrest. And uh, even way down later in Chicago, he just kind of either raised his hands or submitted or ran. So he raised his hands and uh, he he was put under arrest peacefully, as, as was his lady, Evelyn Frechette. So when he got to the police station, apparently there were fingerprints of him. I mean, there was a fingerprint expert anyway in the station house. 
fingerprinting was a relatively new science at that point. And Kenneth Mullaney, I believe, was their fingerprint expert. And he said the very famous line, sign here, John Dillinger. <laughs> like, right. uh-huh, we got you. We know you're not Frank Sullivan. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Triumphantly, sign here, John Dillinger. So uh, th- with that um, fateful statement, the entire gang was now in custody. Uh, Evelyn Frechette. Never was ID'd as Evelyn Frechette in Tucson. It's funny. They got the guys and they knew who they were. But Evelyn Frechette got through Tucson under her alias, which was Ann Martin. Luckily for her. And um, Mary Kinder, who was Pierpont's lady, got through as Mrs. Pierpont. And Evelyn, uh, not Evelyn, uh, Opal Long, the third lady, got through as Bernice Clark. So it's interesting that there wasn't a lot of effort put into identifying the women because what were they getting them on? I think they got them on possession of stolen goods or something, very low bail. You know, they weren't the priority. Right. So they were arraigned in the Pima County courtroom, correct? Yes, yes. When you were there... um. Were you able to walk around there at all? I didn't, yeah. I I wish I had. I was there uh, in the early 2000s, and I know they still have... It's a festival um, for law enforcement, you know, dedicated to law enforcement that they have once a year. And I just, you know, just to close out the, the, the chapter that you and I have just covered, the arrest. Makeley was arrested at Grabby Electric. I found it on my little uh, cheat sheet here, Grabby Electric. And um, he was actually in there looking at radios. He was looking for a police radio. Interesting. uh, Yeah, he didn't find a police radio. Instead, he was arrested. (laughs) Right, he he found uh, the police. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) why the police? So, um. Oh, is do you want to um, move along now to the next, uh, I guess, chapter, which would be what the arraignments? Yeah, yeah. There are some pretty fascinating photographs, right, of the gang all lined up, entering the courtroom, trying their best to hide their faces. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know. There's there's two stories, right? There's always two sides to every story. There's the the things that never made the papers, and uh, there's the things that you hear on the side. And um, it wasn't as bad as some people wanted to say later on about infighting between the arresting officers. There wasn't so much that. There was there was a lot of infighting, I think, between the brass and the arresting officers because there was quite a lot of resentment uh, that started pretty quickly surrounding who got who got to be in charge. You know, I I would imagine that if you risked your own life bringing this these you know these desperados these wanted people in to custody. And then suddenly 
you're usurped by, of course, the, the captain who wants to take credit, the sheriff, the deputy. Well, the deputy sheriff, Farrar, he was a workhorse. He really interacted very personally with the gang. But guys like Wallard, you know, I, I guess took a lot of credit. And um, the arresting officers were kind of pushed to the side. And the, they were angry because uh, Sheriff Belton was not a very popular with the uh, with the patrolman, and he allowed the public to come in. Or I don't know what constituted the public. I mean, reporters probably, most likely, were allowed in, and they were allowed to take photographs of the prisoners in their cells, which is where we get these photos of. Um, Clark in his underwear, which appeared in the Dillinger Days, Toland's book. That's the only place I've ever seen that. And uh, Dillinger at the bars and Pierpont all bloodied up. And uh, the patrolmen who arrested these guys were, were very, very angry at the brass for letting in such a crowd and creating a circus atmosphere because they were afraid of an escape. They were afraid that, you know, and and rightfully so. Look, you know, anytime you let a crowd in, right? I mean, a crowd was allowed in when Lee Harvey Oswald was transferred and, you know, Jack Ruby was able to get in and we won't get started on that. That's a whole other kettle of fish. But, you know, it seems like anytime a big crowd assembled around a sensational person in custody, you know, things happen. So, They were very upset. They did not want the crowd in there. That was one of many instances where where trouble started brewing among the police. But uh, they were walked to the courthouse, to the the Pima County Courthouse. And uh, it's a a, a short walk. The the original station house where the gang was, was kept is no longer a station house. It's been converted. So visitors who want to go on the gangster tour when they have it in January, it's um it's run by Andy Dowdle, who's an amazing researcher over there. They won't be able to go to the original precinct, but the courthouse is there. So they were arraigned and they were brought in and um, the courthouse, you know, the, it was standing room only. And um, the arraignment, was the result of um, quite a lot of uh, problems and skirmishes that were already starting. There was a prosecutor there named Von Bruskirk, right? All their cars were confiscated because they were going to be sold at auction and the proceeds were going to go to the banks. Like, no sooner were the gangsters rounded up, right, that the, the focus really shifted to the loop to what they had on them. The arraignment was almost, and the charges were almost not as important as who was going to get the money. I mean, they got something like $26,000 in total out of the gang, right? So that was put immediately into, I don't know, what they would call a trust account or an escrow. So they they had a court-appointed attorney who, as we know, would not last very long. What was the name, Evans? You know, of course, Louis Paquette, the very sensationally 
famous attorney that would later represent Dillinger was not yet in the picture, you know, so they were given a court appointed attorney and um, they were arraigned as fugitives from justice. Okay. That was the original charge, not murder, not um, bank robbery, because what are you going to do first here? You know, pick a card, any card, what were they primarily in Tucson? They were fugitives from justice. So bail was set at 100000 apiece for each of the men. Now, today we know bail to be a complicated issue. It's either a bond that's put up, it's either cash bail, or it's a promissory note based on property that family members will put up. You know, we know that there are three ways to pay bail today. Well, in those days, they didn't have that sophisticated bail. It was $100,000 each, which they just, nobody had it. And 5000 each for the women. I believe Mary Kinder, the Pierpont Mall's bail was set lower because she, she would remain in custody as a material witness for the time being. She was she was hot because she was a, a suspect in the Michigan City prison escape, the Indiana prison escape that originally sprung these guys, you know. So she was a higher stakes lady. Even though her bail was lower, she wasn't getting out. She was being extradited back. Anyway, I'm getting away from myself. So the original charge is fugitive from justice, okay? So now we've got three fugitives, right? <laughs> who are now in chains, shackled. This is where it really got complicated because we had police officers arriving from the states that had kind of formed a five-state pact to get the Dillinger gang anywhere a robbery took place. So we've got representatives from law enforcement agencies, some of whom offered rewards, some of whom did not, right? Now we've got bank people. We've got the uh, the insurers. You know, I think ha- Harry Pierpont hit the nail on the head when he said, you know, we robbed the banks, but banks robbed the insurance companies and insurance companies robbed the people. Do I have that right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll get a hundred emails. You got that wrong. <laughs> but um, you know what I mean. Anyhow, the insurance companies sent their surety people, their bonds people to put in claims for this $26,000 that was confiscated not only in cash, it was confiscated in bonds from the gang and another 400 and change would be added later on for watches and rings and uh, I guess little luxuries like cigarette cases and stuff like that. And uh, the cause, right? So all of that was added to the gross national product that was the, the former Dillinger gang. Back again after these messages. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. 
The next day, when Raw lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now, and can you guess the twist? Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag... Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we are back for a final time. So the the states wanted these guys charged with murder, depending on who was representing what state. So we had Ohio, which was the murder of Sheriff Sauber. And we had Indiana, who now, Indiana, do I want to get started with them? We'll we'll get to them in a minute. Wisconsin <laughs> sent a representative. It, this is a little fishy, and and I'll go over it very quickly. There was no there was no murder, thank God, in Wisconsin. Thank goodness to those who do not subscribe to God. Um, thank goodness, thank God, no one was killed at the Racine holdup. But interestingly enough. Racine sent representatives from their police department because somehow the Dillinger gang had one of their guns. Now, there was a lot of talk in those days that these bank robberies were fixed. And so it kind of points to the fact that the Racine holdup might have been a setup. 
No reflection mm. on Racine now. I don't want to say that. But there was um, there was evidence in those days that some of these bank robberies were set up for um, the purpose of collecting on insurance. And in the Depression, when nobody had a dime, I think, you know, there's a possibility that these things were going on. So when these police officers arrived, they were the only ones to offer a reward. Okay, so now there's $2,000 offered to extradite the gang to Wisconsin, where nobody was murdered, again, thank goodness, where there was no death penalty. So this looked like, okay, yeah. And they have a great state fair. We're going to Wisconsin, you know? <laughs> and then it was like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you, you know, you can take your $2,000 reward and you know where to put it because Ohio wants them and Indiana wants them for hello, murder. And no, we're not offering a reward, you know? So that's how it was playing out. It was getting really ugly. And the arresting officers then had some sort of, there was some talk that they were in favor of the extradition to Wisconsin because they wanted this reward. Now that's baloney. And I can tell you that I was told by Stan Benjamin, you know, the police historian who interviewed them, None of the arresting officers cared that much about the reward. And I believe that what they cared about was seeing these um, felons tried as murderers, you know, because they could have been murdered trying to arrest them. So they wanted them tried as murderers. And for the record, none of the arresting officers ever got anything akin to a reward. I mean, there was some money put in a fund for them to give lectures and all because there was a philanthropist who was sympathetic to police who, who, who funded some lecture tours and things, but they never got a reward per se. So here we have Ohio was pretty much a shoe in at that point for getting Clark, Pierpont, and Makeley for the murder of Sheriff Sauber. I mean, I don't know how far back you want me to go. Dillinger people know that that was the escape from prison that resulted in springing John Dillinger from jail, in which Sheriff Sauber was murdered in cold blood by one member of the Dillinger gang. They were all there it's now called felony murder, you know, that if you're there, you're being charged with murder, whether you actually pull the trigger or not. So, you know, in today's jargon, they were three of them wanted for felony murder in Ohio. So Ohio got them right now. The Indiana boys were fighting over John Dillinger, partly because Captain Matt Leach who was a controversial and very um, polarizing policeman, to say the least, arrived representing his guys. He came with um, Harvey Heyer, who was a, a kind of a famous Indiana State Police officer, locally famous Harvey Heyer. He came with Marie Grott, who worked for the Indiana State Police. In other words, he kind of brought his faction with him. Tubby Toms, the Indiana reporter who was very sympathetic to Leach and who would always spin it from uh, Leach's point of view. 
they all arrived in a kind of a caravan on a train. Everybody was on trains in those days. You know, nobody flew, nobody had cars. But um, also coming from Indiana, but from a very different perspective was, guess who? The Crown Point guys. And, you know, I keep saying guys, guys, because aside from Marie Grat, there were not really a lot of women involved in the Tucson excitement. Of course, we know that there would be a woman sheriff, Lillian Holly, a little bit later on. But right now, this was a boys club and the boys weren't behaving very nicely towards each other. So Matt Leach is there to take Dillinger because he wants Dillinger for the Massachusetts Avenue bank robbery. That also involved another one of Leach's arrestees, Harry Copeland. You know, it's amazing how political this was, right? And, um, right. you know, Massachusetts Avenue was a pretty good job. It netted 21,000. It was Indianapolis. Nobody was killed, but it was a, it was a pretty, as bank robberies go, there were high stakes. And you don't even know who Leach knew there, you know. Was there somebody from Massachusetts Avenue Police Bank robbery that wanted to get some of this loot? Because, you know, the banks were there trying to get their share of the stolen money, right? They were all in Tucson, too. So uh, I can read off the names of the insurance companies a a little bit later if you really want to fall asleep. (laughs) But, uh, you know, Matt Leach now, he's there. But the really sinister aspect of the of this is the Crown Point people who wanted Dillinger. And, you know, Dillinger buffs know that there would later be that sensational wooden gun from the Crown Point County Jail and yada, yada. But uh, bada bing, bada boom, what else can I say? <laughs> but uh, the East Chicago boys also included the I'll say corrupt. I mean, don't shoot me for that. But they're pretty much acknowledged to have been a rather shady police department. There was Sergeant Zarkovich and Conroy and and uh, Chief Mayor. You know, there were there was a very big entourage from East Chicago, Indiana, that wanted Dillinger put into a a very very easy jail. The, the Lake County Jail in Indiana to stand trial ostensibly, allegedly, for the murder of a police officer named William Patrick O'Malley, who was killed in the uh, January 15th bank robbery that took place in East Chicago, Indiana. So, okay, uh, let's see who won this war, this habeas corpus war. Meanwhile, there's this uh, court appointed lawyer in Tucson trying to file a writ of habeas corpus to keep everybody's body, the bo- keep the body here. Good luck with that. Wild horses could not have kept them anywhere except where these police officers were determined to bring them. And Dillinger, Dillinger was spirited out. I mean, it, it, he was actually, they, they spirited him out and then took him to a plane, an airplane, which, uh, was another amazing moment in in Dillinger law that Dillinger rides a plane. I mean, all these these big shot cops that have to take trains, you know, but Dillinger gets an airplane and a stewardess who who tucked a coat around him and 
And uh, he was on this airplane with the Chicago crowd and uh, Robert Estill, who was the district attorney from Crown Point, Indiana. So Dillinger would be tried for the murder of Officer O'Malley. And Dillinger was taken out, you know, what do they call it? Kicking and screaming is the old saying, but he literally was, he was ballistic. And um, Harry Pierpont was allegedly rattling the, the bars and yelling, they're putting you on the spot, boy. Like I could just picture that, you know, boy, you're, you're on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you know, that was that. And uh, you know, some of the other crazy drama that took place before um, Pierpont, and Makeley and Clark and Mary Kinder were taken out on a train, second class <laughs> citizens, uh, was that Captain Matt Leach from Indiana State Police, who was, you know, the rabble raz and notorious, not very popular with other cops outside of his own circle. You know, he walked in there to sort of uh, stick it to Pierpont, you know, and um, Pierpont hated Matt Leach because he believed that Leach tried to arrest his mother. Pierpont was, like a lot of these guys, devoted to his mom. These mothers, you know, they weren't tough love mothers. You know, these mothers, (laughs) my son, right or wrong, he's a good boy, you know. And um, Pierpont thought that Leach had tried to arrest his mother back in Terre Haute. Uh, Indiana and um, Leach always claimed no that it was local police who sent somebody to arrest his mother and his brother Fred but uh, he said I should have killed you when I had the chance you're a dirty rat I don't know if, if there were true expletives they would not have been reported at that time by uh, reporters but uh, he basically said I should have killed you I would have killed you I would have should have could have and he made it plain that, you know, Matt Leach was definitely his mortal enemy, you know, someone that he would kill if he could. And, uh, and you know, Matt Leach had his chance and his comeuppance that when they were taken out of Tucson by train to be extradited to Ohio for the murder of Sheriff Saba, Pierpont wanted to sit with his girlfriend, Mary. Uh, one last time, Mary Kinda and uh, Leach would not allow them to sit together. Now, come what a meanie, right? I mean, let them sit together, right? Wouldn't let them sit together. Now, Mary had tried to marry Pierpont in Tucson, and she could have, you know. She had another interesting tidbit. She was she was divorced from a police officer. I think in Indianapolis City Cop, that she had his name, Kinda, and he actually accused her at one point of saying, you ruined my name. Uh, she wanted to marry Pierpont, and they tried to get a marriage license in Tucson. That would have just really made it for the, uh, could you imagine the reporters <laughs> at the wedding? <laughs> <laughs> I, Pierpont, take the Kinda, you know but wanted by blah, blah, blah. But um, they wouldn't allow the marriage. They claimed that Mary was not legally divorced. And I guess she had no way of proving that she was. Uh, Historians have established um, 
that she was in fact divorced. We have the divorce papers and everything, and they predated her attempt to get married. So that was, you know, that was kind of sad for them. And uh, Mary, who would stay faithful to Pierpont to the end, you know, visiting in prison and everything. But, you know, to get back to it, they all boarded the train. And I believe they stopped at Hot Springs for some reason. Mary was transferred to another train and she was brought back by Marie Grot, who was the Indianapolis police woman. Um, so she, her, her job there was to escort Mary. The, you know, women cops in those days were generally employed to escort women prisoners. Up until about the 1960s, that's how it was in New York, before women became full-fledged um, police officers. So that's how that was. So Mary, with Marie Grot, was brought to Indianapolis, where she was put into prison, put into county jail for about a month, during which time she testified before the grand jury. Uh, you know, those records are sealed. It's impossible to get them. I wish it wasn't, but, you know, you can't get them. But I'm quite sure that Mary didn't give any information. Allegedly, she was supposed to be testifying as to her role in the Michigan City break, which was, again, the the break that started it all, you know, that released Pierpont and Makeley and Clark onto the world. So that's what happened there. And the uh, three members of the Dillinger gang that were headed for Ohio went to Chicago. Now, I want to mention, as I'm moving us along geographically, <laughs> that um, they had a new name by now. R- reporters are what they are. And in those days, reporters liked headlines and were under a lot of pressure to create them, as they still are. If you if you read the Associated Press style books, you know, you see that headlines still have to be catchy. And uh, they decided that the terror gang was going to be their new moniker. So from here on in, they were the terror gang this, the terror gang that, you know, they were never called that before Tucson, right? I don't think so. And uh, I may be wrong, but I don't think so. And so now they were the terror gang. And they went to Chicago where they were actually taken over physically by members of the Dillinger squad. Now, you know, we can talk about that. Uh, The Dillinger squad was at Chicago. Chicago was one of the very few police uh, department that was friendly to Indianapolis and friendly to Indiana cops. It, mainly because Matt Leach was not popular with other cops and he basically represented Indiana State Police. So they were taken over by Sergeant Reynolds. Reynolds and Stage were tough cops. I mean, they they were all tough cops, in my opinion, in those days. I mean, you know, Harry Pierpont was derogatory towards Tucson. He called them hick cops. But then he later recanted and said, you know, hey, for hick cops, you guys were all right. But now we, now that they were in the company of Sergeant Reynolds, I mean, we're talking about these guys had formed the Dillinger squad back in November of 33 when the Dillinger was hot in Chicago at that point. At that 
uh, in uh, December 8th of 33, one of the Dillinger gang members, John Hamilton, whom we have not mentioned thus far, he shot and killed Sergeant Shanley uh, in, during a botched uh, attempt to arrest him in a Chicago garage over across the street there from the Green Mill, the famous tavern in Chicago. And uh, that's when Dillinger became a really hot commodity in Chicago, you know. So the Dillinger squad was a 40-cop detail. And just to give you a little idea what these guys were like, they went in one, you know, smoky afternoon, gun smoking, and killed three low-level local gangsters. Their names, well, there were three Jewish gangsters. They, I say this because they were identified as such in the, in the paper. And, you know, you don't really know what the deal was. Maybe they, they were really looking for them, but they claimed to the press that they were gunning for the Dillinger gang. Now, instead of a, an inquiry and, um, protesting, protesters, you know, that wasn't the climate in the 1930s. You know, police did whatever they wanted in those days. You know that, right? Or they got away with whatever. And they, they went on record as saying, this is um, an example of what Chicago police can do. We can murder three guys for no reason because we thought they were members of the Dillinger gang. So we've got these tough Chicago cops now that are in the police car with the terror gang and everybody's en route to Ohio where um, they're going to stand trial for capital murder, death sentence pending. And uh, that was what, that was the ultimate disposition of Makeley, Clark and uh, Pierpont into the walls of the, of the prison in Columbus, Ohio. I mean, Dillinger's in Crown Point, the, the alleged escape-proof county jail to stand trial for murder. Everybody's standing trial for murder here. Mary is in jail for a month. And the two the two women who slipped out were Evelyn Frechette, the Native American girlfriend of John Dillinger, and uh, Mary Kinder, not Mary Kinder, Opal Long, who passed as Clark's wife. And they just, they got out. They were quoted as saying, uh, none, of your, none of your business where we're going. But Opal Long and, and Evelyn, they stayed together through the, whole, uh, through the whole thing until they were later arrested in the spring. Interesting. Okay, so I have to ask you about this. Uh, there's a jar that allegedly contains Dillinger's gum. Have you heard about this? <laughs> where, where, at Tucson? Yeah, I, I read that <laughs> recently. Um, it sounds a little silly. <laughs> but but someone is claiming that this is real. Uh, Dillinger had supposedly gone into a drugstore and left some chewed up gum, like stuck it under the counter. And someone who worked there took it once he, he realized that the customer had been Dillinger and preserved it in a jar. You know, um, <laughs> he was an inveterate gum chewer. I believe he was a compulsive chewer of gum. That's what I've read. But I never read anything about stealing the gum. I mean, there was they were selling eyebrow hairs 
that were taken from the death mask that was made in Chicago after his death. So anything is possible. That's pretty gross. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, see, that sounds like a lot of baloney. You, I, that just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't believe that. And, and I don't think any, that's not a provenance and true collectors, I don't think would see any, any merit in that. Well, gosh, I appreciate connecting again with you, Ellen. It's always so fun to talk with you about Dillinger and his crew. Well, thank you, Eric. I, I very much appreciate that you have such an interest in the history of John Dillinger to the point where you would want to focus on Tucson. Amazing. Thank you. Hey, everyone. So a quick follow-up to this interview. I realized after Ellen and I had parted ways that I should have asked her about how things ended for Russell Clark, Charles Makeley, and Harry Pierpont. It had taken a while for Helen and I to match up our schedules the first go-around, and I knew a second time would be difficult as well. So here I go with my own little summary to finish up the story on this notorious Tucson Quartet. So as we earlier established, all of this Tucson monkey business went down at the very end of January 1934. The wheels of justice moved swiftly for them all, I talked with Ellen in an earlier episode about Dillinger and his escape from Indiana's Crown Point County Jail. Dillinger went on a bank robbing spree after that, joined up with a new gang, including Babyface Nelson, Homer Van Meter, etc., before finally getting ambushed and killed outside the Biograph Theater in Chicago on July 22nd of that year. As for Clark, Makeley, and Pierpont, they were all tried in Ohio for Sheriff Sarber's murder in back-to-back -back trials. Makeley and Pierpont received death sentences, and Russell Clark got life. At the end of March, all three were transferred to Ohio State Prison. Clark began serving his life sentence, while Makeley and Pierpont waited for their executions in October. No doubt emboldened by their friend John Dillinger's successful escape, with a fake gun, and certainly with little to lose, Makeley and Pierpont decided to try it too. On September 22nd, Pierpont beat up a guard who had brought him his lunch, and he snatched the guard's keys, which he used to open Makeley and Clark's cell doors. Clark, not destined to die by electric chair, opted out of joining his former accomplices, which was a good decision because before long, a prison riot squad had appeared and let loose with their weapons, dropping Makeley and Pierpont to the floor. Makeley died quickly. However, Pierpont managed to survive, but only temporarily, because the following month he was executed as planned. Russell Clark spent almost the rest of his life behind bars, in 1968, he got sick with cancer and was paroled, and he was free for four months before dying from the disease. My guest again has been Ellen Polson. She is the author of Chasing Dillinger, Don't Call Us Moles, The Case Against Lucky Luciano, and her website is ellenpolson.com. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis. 
and have a safe tomorrow. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.